Welcome to this episode of Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing the topic of innovation in nuclear pharmacy with our guest, Dr. Andrew Brown. Dr. Brown received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Ohio Northern University. He is also a board-certified nuclear pharmacist and has practiced nuclear pharmacy for 13 years at institutions such as the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Cardinal Health. He now works as Manager of Quality Assurance in the Pharmacy Division of Nuclear and Precision Health Solutions at Cardinal Health. Andrew, it's great to have you on the podcast today. We appreciate you coming here in studio with us, um, and it's good to see you. Uh, for the listeners, uh, Dr. Andrew Brown and I go back nearly 20 years here where we both uh, attended pharmacy school together. So it's a distinct pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for making the trip down. Thank you. It's an honor. All right. So um, if we think back now to, wow, over 20 years ago at Ohio Northern and the path that your career has has gone on, it's of course landed you in nuclear pharmacy where you are today, but you've worked at a number of other places too. So maybe take us on that professional journey and, and tell us the different areas that you've been involved in after school. So I started my pharmacy career at Lima Memorial Hospital. I worked there for a short time and worked in just kind of a jack-of-all-trades role. Um, did a lot of clinical rounding and your nuts and bolts of, of clinical pharmacy, antibiotic, renal dosing, uh, managing TPN therapy, things like that. And I also did a large component of pharmacy staff work as a hospital pharmacist. Worked a lot of night shifts, seven on, seven off. So uh, was, was uh, quickly acclimated to that, uh, that role. Um, after that, I worked at the Cleveland Clinic, was uh, soon identified after I started there as a good candidate for their sterile compounding pharmacy. So at the time, they called us IV specialists, so worked in their um, rather cutting-edge sterile compounding facility, prepared a variety of very unique products, and, and began to began my career in somewhat of the regulatory role um, in managing some of our compliance there. Um, after my time there, I transitioned to nuclear pharmacy, uh, started as a, as a staff nuclear pharmacist at uh, Cardinal Health's Cleveland Pharmacy, um, and really fell in love with the specialty, found that, uh, that this was what I felt that I was meant to do uh, in terms of practicing pharmacy. Uh, it really was a step somewhat into the unknown. But uh, but found that it was exactly what I needed to be doing to to help others. Um, from there, was uh, offered a, an opportunity to join the Wexner Medical Center's nuclear pharmacy, and uh, and uh, began to see a different side of the nuclear pharmacy practice. We're very heavily integrated into patient care with the nuclear medicine department, working very closely with patients, with nuclear medicine physicians, things like that. And then finally, uh, my most recent step has been into a regulatory role with Cardinal Health. I joined the pharmacy practice group, and uh, we are responsible for the practice of pharmacy at uh, approximately 130 pharmacies in 45 different states. So walk us through a day in the life for, for Andrew Brown these days. So what type of work are you doing in your current role? So a day in the life uh, of, of Andrew's role now, um, largely we are a support group. So we support our pharmacists that are on the front lines taking care of patients, taking care of, uh, of nuclear medicine facilities. So um, we look to make sure we will answer any regulatory questions that, that come up. 
We will assist pharmacies uh, with inspections that they may be undergoing. We have a variety of, uh, of regulators that are interested in our practice, from boards of pharmacy to the Department of Transportation to radioactive material licensing entities, whether that's the NRC or, or agreement states. So it is not uncommon to have an inspector in your pharmacy, and uh, we, we help support uh, our folks when they encounter questions or need clarification of procedure or policy. So before we get started in talking with you today about our topic, I think it's important for our listeners to kind of have context for who you're representing and what your role is here on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Yeah, I just wanted to, to make sure everyone's aware that I'm representing myself, that uh, although I am an employee of Cardinal Health, uh, I'm not representing the company formally during this discussion. So let's dive right into our discussion of our topic today. So if you had to define nuclear pharmacy for us, how would you do that? So nuclear pharmacy is a specialty practice of pharmacy that deals with radioactive drugs is really the best way to describe it. Okay. Tell us about the history of how this practice even came to be a thing. So nuclear pharmacy as a practice has evolved and has undergone nearly constant shifts due to whether it's regulatory concerns or whether it's just being able to provide care for the patients. This really started in the very early days where nuclear pharmacies were predominantly hospital-based. And uh, it was a number of physician innovators along with pharmacists that were working out the nuts and bolts of how to use radioactive material to improve patients' lives. What we saw as a shift in the industry is that although this started at very few isolated large medical centers, as this became a more widespread, commonly accepted form of uh, practice of medicine, we found that it was most efficient from a business perspective to centralize a lot of this care. So that's where you saw a transition from hospital-based nuclear pharmacies to a centralized model. So a single centralized nuclear pharmacy could provide radiopharmaceuticals for uh, dozens of nuclear medicine clinics or hospitals in the area. So this increased the access of, of uh, nuclear medicine technology to a variety of patients. So to help our listeners be familiar, could you give us some examples of radiopharmaceuticals that are commonly used today in, in medical care? Absolutely. So one of the most common radiopharmaceuticals that, uh, that individuals are familiar with are myocardial perfusion imaging agents, or more commonly known as a cardiac stress test. So really the, the theory of diagnostic nuclear medicine is that we want to get a drug that localizes somewhere in the body. So if we want to image your kidneys, we get a drug that localizes to the kidney. If we want to image your heart, we get a drug that localizes to the heart. We then add a radioactive material to that drug, and as that drug goes to the heart, we're able to image it. So um, cardiac imaging, cardiac stress test imaging is very common. People also may be familiar with uh, gallbladder imaging. That's a fairly common nuclear medicine procedure, and there are numerous uh, oncology nuclear medicine procedures, and there are a variety of procedures as well that we can image almost any system within the body. So you mentioned the importance of radiopharmaceuticals with diagnostics. What are some applications to therapeutics that we can see? So the analogy that I love to use is diagnostic radiopharmaceuticals are kind of like a flashlight. Is, is we tag a flashlight to this drug, 
and we're able to see where it goes. Well, the analogy I love to lean on is if I can attach a flashlight to a drug, I can attach a hand grenade. So what we do is we then take a radionuclide that actually its emissions are energetic enough to do damage to the cell. So if there's a, a cell that we want to damage or, or stun, we will use these drugs to localize that radiation therapeutically to decrease the activity of that tissue. So a, a great application could be when you have aberrant cells, like a cancer cell per, um, in particular, that could be a target of a radiopharmaceutical. Absolutely. That's a, a tremendous area of growth right now in nuclear pharmacy is we have a number of agents that we use in oncology imaging, and many of those are being adapted to actually provide therapy, to provide radiation directly to a tumor. Another great example and, and kind of the classic example that we lean on is uh, the thyroid. So iodine uh, collects and is sequestered by the thyroid. So if we want to image it, we give you a very, uh, very imageable radionuclide. If we want to, uh, to knock down your thyroid function, either due to hyperthyroidism or thyroid carcinoma, we'll provide a different radionuclide that, that provides uh, enough energy to damage those cells. So when you were in the nuclear pharmacy daily... This is part of your workflow. What does that work look like? For example, are there certain personal protective measures that you take? What does a day in the life of a nuclear pharmacist look like? So a day in the life of a nuclear pharmacist is, uh, is early, is one adjective that I would use to describe it. The nature of the radionuclides that we use, they have very limited uh, half-lives. They decay. And so if you're having, I, I usually, I love to work backwards from the patient. So if you're having a cardiac stress test at 9 a.m., that drug needs to be to the hospital by, say, 8 or 7. If it needs to be to the hospital that's an hour away from your centralized nuclear pharmacy, it needs to leave my door at 6. The reality of logistics is we're not making one stop on that route. So that route may have four or five stops ahead of it. So the driver may be leaving the pharmacy at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m., which means uh, the nuclear pharmacist is in there preparing that radioactive material and making that radiopharmaceutical at 1 or 2 in the morning. So uh, typically nuclear pharmacy is, is, uh, is done in the early hours of the morning um, in preparation of, of the scheduled tests. And of course, as any field of medicine, we have emergency or same-day procedures. So um, after you transition out of your early morning hours, often it's, uh, it's same-day emergent procedures. Um, then uh, you'll work through that through the morning. And typically, the rest of the day is committed to preparing for the next morning's uh, production run. Um, in terms of personal protective equipment and things like that, nuclear pharmacy strikes a unique balance in protecting both the worker and the patient. So we have to have the same sets of aseptic controls that are used in any sterile compounding environment, ISO class 5 PECs, ISO class 7 or class 8 secondary engineering controls. So we have to protect the patients. We have to make sure that these injectable radiopharmaceuticals are sterile. That being said, we also have to protect ourselves. We are dealing with radiation. So we have a number of, of pieces of equipment to both protect us from the radiation and also monitor how much radiation uh, we as workers are exposed to. So in a, in a typical nuclear pharmacy, you'll see things such as a leaded glass L-block that um, 
that the worker stands behind to protect themselves from the radioactive drug. We also use syringe shields, vial shields. So our aseptic technique looks uh, significantly different from what you'll see in a traditional uh, handling facility. So when you think about the work that nuclear pharmacists do, what do you love most about it? What draws you to continue to every day wake up and want to be involved in this particular practice area? So I think the thing that I enjoy the most about nuclear pharmacy is that it's highly technical, but yet it's also directly patient-focused. So as many specialty fields in pharmacy go, it's a very narrow focus of um, education and experiential expertise. You have to understand radiation. You have to understand the physics of radioactive decay. You have to understand DOT shipment regulations to stay within compliance. It's a very narrow set and it's highly technical, but it's also providing that scan to evaluate your grandmother's cancer or your father's hyperthyroidism, is it's very technical, but it's also very patient-centered. Oh, that's great. And I, I think anytime we can connect what we're doing back to the patient, um, that will keep us going in this, uh, in this profession and the work that we do. That's great. So you mentioned some of the personal protective equipment and many of the practices to keep a pharmacist safe. So is this a safe job? I think a lot of our listeners are probably wondering, this sounds super cool. Is it safe? Is this something I would want to do? How would you answer that? Uh, I believe radiopharmacy is a very safe practice of pharmacy. Um, one of the analogies I love to use is I love to compare it to other fields that focus on oncology. So, for instance, um, it's very easy to measure and quantify the amount of radiation a worker is exposed to. Uh, all radioactive material licenses require monitoring of workers' exposure. And so I know exactly how much radiation I've been exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, that being said, there are other occupational hazards within pharmacy, like chemotherapy agents. So if you're mixing chemotherapy, how much of that were you exposed to? You really don't know. Good and point. so with this, we know exactly how much we've been exposed to. It's very easy to detect contamination. It's very easy to remedy that contamination. So um, there are a number of longitudinal studies that look at the effects of radiation over time with workers, and, and there's still even some controversy within that field, but, um, but there are very clear regulatory limits. And frankly, as, as a nuclear pharmacist, it's very rare that uh, workers uh, approach any of those regulatory limits. So you mentioned the patient being at the end of everything you do. Um, does a nuclear pharmacist get a lot of patient interaction, or do you find that a lot of that interaction is with the providers that you, that you serve? So I would say the vast majority of nuclear pharmacists have very minimal patient interaction. Uh, most of our interaction is with the nuclear medicine technologists that are administering the radiopharmaceuticals and acquiring the imaging data from them, or physicians that are, are prescribing the radiopharmaceuticals themselves. Um, in very select roles, such as hospital-based nuclear pharmacy, you can have significant um, patient interaction. For instance, as in my role at Ohio State, I frequently would interact with patients, educating them about procedures or, or things like that. But typically, I, I would say overall, in the field of nuclear pharmacy, patient interaction is, is minimal. Okay, that's great. Another question that I, I think a lot of 
people ask when it comes to pharmacy careers is the balance of work and a personal life. And you're not just in pharmacy, but you're also a husband, you're a father of three boys, and I know you desire to invest in all of their lives. So what does this, uh, this balance or integration of work and life look like for you, especially considering that sometimes a nuclear pharmacist will mean early hours? Um, so maybe answer that question generally for nuclear pharmacy in your experience, and then you can transition to your own current role, which is a little bit different. So the balance of, of work and life with, uh, with nuclear pharmacy at times can be challenging. As I mentioned, um, you know, <laughs> I could speak from experience of a family member that needed a nuclear medicine procedure at one point, and I was on call, and I was like, if they need it, I'm going to get it. So, um, you know, as if you have a GI bleed in the middle of the night, you really want someone to be able to provide that radiopharmaceutical that you need. So most, if not all, nuclear pharmacies provide an on-call emergency service. So um, that's something that goes with the territory is, is patients come first. So I could tell you many times of being uh, awoken out of bed early in the morning on minimal sleep, driving into the pharmacy through piles of snow to, uh, to prepare a radiopharmaceutical emergently for a patient that needed it. That being said, nuclear pharmacy uh, typically does offer a very good balance of, of work-life balance is that emergency on-call or, or weekend staffing is generally lighter from what I've seen than um, other practice settings, and, uh, and you're able to, to balance that very well. Um, for instance, you mentioned working nights. I loved working nights because it gives you the opportunity during the day to be there for your family as you can you can shift your sleep schedule around uh, family commitments. So, so yeah. So in your current role, there probably aren't as many nights now, or maybe, maybe that's a bad assumption. I don't know. What does that look like today? Yeah. In my current role, um, the work-life balance is much different. I'm, I'm largely uh, riding a desk, so to speak. Uh, so, you know, corporate daytime hours. Um, but, you know, we're always available. Uh, our, our, our boots on the ground, so to speak, are working in the middle of the night, and, and maybe an inspector is there in the middle of the night. So we are available um, for them. So maybe this is a related question, but have you seen the COVID-19 pandemic change how um, nuclear pharmacy is practiced or have there been new considerations that the pandemic brought? Yes. Uh, COVID-19 has had a, a significant impact on uh, nuclear medicine in general. Um, there have been some procedural shifts by the nuclear medicine community. Um, several agents are in trial for different either COVID therapies or existing diagnostic therapies are being shifted due to COVID concerns. And then, of course, this affects not only nuclear pharmacy, but any industry. Um, there have been significant staffing challenges and things like that associated with COVID-19, as well as supply chain interruptions. So I'd love to hear a little bit of insight about where you see nuclear pharmacy going. So it, what are some of the innovations that you think are on the horizon for nuclear pharmacy? And maybe a new radiopharmaceutical or a disease state that would benefit. This is open-ended to wherever you see nuclear pharmacy going. So I think in the immediate future, uh, we're beginning. There are two large shifts that industry experts have been predicting in nuclear medicine. 
One is positron emitting isotopes. So we we have various methods of detecting radiation. One of those is through positron emission tomography. Um, and that seems to be the emerging field. When you look at where research is being done, the majority of diagnostic radiopharmaceuticals are positron emitters. So we're beginning to see new approvals come there. Uh, there was one very recently. So we're beginning to see some shift towards that away from some of the, the technologies we used previously to, to these positron emitters. And I think the, the most um, disruptive innovation is going to be the entrance of new therapeutic radiopharmaceuticals. So as we alluded to, if you can get a drug that isolates to a cancer cell line, you can usually treat it. We've seen this with radium dichloride, for example, Zofigo, in the treatment of uh, metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Um, it, was, it was a disease line that had very few therapeutic options, and a radiopharmaceutical enters the, the market and, uh, and, and gives these patients a new option. Um, I believe that that will be, over the next five years or so, we will see a significant shift where um, you will see some of the current treatment guidelines being revised as uh, as these new therapeutic radiopharmaceuticals become available. So with some of the innovation in the use of radiopharmaceuticals, do you see a day where the place in therapy for these agents may actually um, be first or second line for certain conditions? Absolutely. I think uh, we've seen historically that therapeutic radiopharmaceuticals have unique ability, uh, unique abilities to offer treatments for very specific disease states and provide very good outcomes. As I mentioned, uh, we're anticipating this wave of new therapeutic agents. And I think as clinical trial data begins to roll in, you're going to see that disease states that did not have radiopharmaceuticals in part of the treatment algorithm, you will begin to see therapeutic radiopharmaceuticals appear in the treatment algorithms. And, and in some cases, they may become the drug of choice for treating some of these conditions. So Andrew, as you've alluded to earlier, regulatory standards are incredibly important when it comes to nuclear medicine and the preparation and storage, delivery of radiopharmaceuticals. So uh, tell us a little bit more about those regulatory standards and some of the upcoming changes that are being considered. So one of the largest, we, we are at the, the turning point of nuclear pharmacy regulation. So the United States Pharmacopeia, USP, drafts guidance chapters of standards for a variety of fields, from manufacturing to pharmacy to a variety of fields. The current standard for radiopharmaceuticals was uh, chapter 797, the sterile compounding chapter. So any, any pharmacist that practices in a sterile handling environment will be very familiar with these standards. They've, uh, they've been around for a long time, and, and we've worked with them and adapted them into our process. Well, when you look at this, this set of standards that broadly applies to a number of sterile uh, agents that are used in humans, we found that they don't perfectly fit radiopharmaceuticals. Radiopharmaceuticals are kind of their own creature. 
And so uh, a number of stakeholders, including the Society for Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging, lobbied USP and asked for our own individual chapter. And so uh, we were very proud and, and excited to see USP Chapter 825, which specifically addresses radiopharmaceuticals, uh, be drafted. It's currently official, but it's not yet compendial. So we are awaiting the revision of uh, 797, which will include the clause that, uh, that excludes radiopharmaceuticals from the scope of 797. So we've seen some states already adopt 825 as the applicable regulation, but I think that we will see this trend across pharmacy. We've seen chapter USP 800 in relationship to hazardous drugs, and I begin. I, I believe we'll begin to see the shift of of more focused, targeted regulation of of areas. So we're super excited to see 825. Seeing the history of 797 and how that was implemented now well over a decade ago, I'm curious if there are additional technological advances or requirements that you see being needed in nuclear pharmacy related to these regulatory standards. Yes. Uh, I believe nuclear pharmacy has been on the forefront of technologic innovation uh, for quite some time. Um, you know, I, The radionuclides we deal with decay rapidly. So inventory can be challenging. We're not dealing with uh, with you know tablets on a on a shelf that you can count. Uh, you have tablets that are disappearing, half of them every six hours. So um, so our nuclear pharmacy has invested heavily in managing technology and and innovating technology to manage inventory. And, and what we're beginning to see uh, industry wide within nuclear pharmacy and within nuclear medicine as a whole is heavy applications of these technologies. So for instance, some of these radiopharmaceuticals require very strict storage conditions. So we're looking at GPS-enabled tracking and tracing temperature logs. Um, we have a global, literally global supply chain. Um, so international shipments can be tracked and traced and you can know where your product is. Is there a delay? Is there things like that? So. Um, and then there's also the application of looking at this data. So from a nuclear pharmacy perspective, we're able to leverage data on, on how we're using these drugs in order to make our practice more efficient so that we're able to provide efficient care for patients. Um, we're also seeing um, these things spread into, into radiology as a whole. Um, there's many very high technology applications within this field. So just like for me, I'm sure for a lot of our listeners, the information that you've given us today, um, a lot of it's new for us. So if we wanted to go and explore more, learn more about nuclear pharmacy, what are some resources that we could go to? I would highly recommend probably your first stop should be your your local nuclear pharmacist. Just as pharmacists serve as an educational resource for patients in a community pharmacy setting, I would say that the nuclear pharmacist can play that same role uh, to other pharmacists. So as I mentioned, there's a lot of regulatory standards. This is a very specialized practice of pharmacy. So the first thing I would say is as a pharmacist, don't hesitate to engage the nuclear pharmacist that's preparing radiopharmaceuticals for your facility. So feel free to engage them, ask questions. Um, we, we love to interact and we love to talk about our field. And what about for students who might be interested in exploring this field more? What are some ways that they can learn about nuclear pharmacy? 
I would recommend uh, for students a great place to to start is um, APHA, the American Pharmacist Association, really is uh, the industry group that nuclear pharmacists most closely associate with. Um, they do have a nuclear pharmacy uh, special interest group, SIG, and one of the one of the uh, committees within that SIG is the new practitioner SIG. So they're uh, specifically equipped to help students uh, get to know and get to meet and learn more about the field of nuclear pharmacy and nuclear pharmacists. So I think that's an excellent stop. But I would I would echo what I said earlier that engage your local nuclear pharmacist. Um, many of the the large networks of nuclear pharmacists, Cardinal included, have a large social media presence or or uh, frankly just call and connect many academic Academic institutions have some connection to a nuclear pharmacy, um, so just uh, just feel free to reach out. So one last question for you would be, what type of person or pharmacist in this case would thrive best in nuclear pharmacy practice? I think the characteristics that I would identify as most uh, critical to success in, in nuclear pharmacy would be individuals that are highly analytical, uh, detail-oriented, as we mentioned, huge regulatory burden associated with nuclear pharmacy. But the other thing that we've hit on quite a bit in our discussion is the continual change in our practice is day-to-day, year-to-year um, nuclear pharmacy is always encountering new drugs, new therapies, new options, new business models, new technologies to be applied within our practice. So I think that that, that combination of someone that's highly analytical but also open to and, and engages with change and challenges is a great mix for someone that's interested in our field. Well, Andrew, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest here. I'm so thankful that you've been able to highlight not only what a nuclear pharmacy is and the way it can be used to leverage great outcomes for patients, but also telling us a little bit about where the field's going. So thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupt, a podcast from the Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share the podcast with others. For more information on the Cedarville University School of Pharmacy and Center for Pharmacy Innovation, visit www.cedarville.edu pharmacy. Thanks for listening.